0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: What does it mean to live in history? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. In some obvious sense, we're always living in history. But there are those moments, those events, that feel different, where you can sense that the stakes are enormous and that the shape of the future depends on how it all turns out. The war in Ukraine is very much one of these events. If Russia succeeds in conquering another country, it will send ripple effects across the globe, And especially in Europe, where it has already precipitated a major shift in how nations like Germany and France and Finland and Sweden imagine their own defense. All of this presents an opportunity to step back and think about not just the direction of history, but also about how fragile our world really is and how quickly the things we take for granted, like democracy, like peace, can just go away. So, for today's episode, I spoke with Yale historian Timothy Snyder. Snyder is the author of many books on Ukraine, Russia, and Europe. He also wrote the 2017 bestseller, On Tyranny, which remains an indispensable reminder that the future is not fixed, that being a citizen means active engagement with the world, with other people, with truth. We talk about the state of the war in Ukraine, Why he insists that democracies are always undone from within rather than from without. And how he thinks we can free ourselves, not just from political tyranny, but from the tyranny of bad ideas. Timothy Snyder, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. All right. The war in Ukraine has been raging, I guess, since February. And this is something you have written and spoken about at length in various places. I don't want to ask you to rehash all of that, but I do want to deal with it. And I think it makes sense to start with where we are right now. I mean, how do you see the current state of play? Is either side winning? Is winning even the right term
2: here? So the war in Ukraine, is it's hard to draw a beat on, partly because The places are very unfamiliar. You know, suddenly everyone's a Russia expert and Ukraine expert. Now I've been thinking about Russia and Ukraine my whole career and I know the languages and I I go to the places and I'm sometimes shocked by how certain people are (laughs) about things. My own sense is that the best way to evaluate it or the simplest is in terms of what Putin expected and then what hasn't happened. So, what Putin expected was that the whole country would fold up, that Ukraine would fold up within three days. And that expectation was based upon a political assumption, an assumption about what Ukraine is or what it isn't, an assumption that aside from a thin group of elites who are funded and backed by the West, there really isn't a Ukrainian people. And therefore, once he could demonstrate the power of Russia, these inchoate masses would be happily colonized. That obviously didn't turn out to be true. But, you know, as we know from lots of other historical examples, once you start a war, no matter how dumb your premise is, it's very unlikely that you're going to say, oh, my premise was dumb. I'm changing my mind. People double down. And, of course, Putin is going to double down. And I think he probably still in some way believes in his own basic premise. So the second part of the story is that obviously the Ukrainian nation does exist. Ukrainian society is decentralized. I mean, both institutionally, but also in its own self awareness. It's a society which is very suspicious of central authority in general, and obviously suspicious of somebody else's central authority. And Russia is a very centralized type of central authority. But this is all proven to have a kind of battlefield efficacy because Ukrainian doctrine was break into small groups and to allow lower level officers to have a great deal of autonomy in the field. And that's proven to work quite well. And so it's interesting because, you know, what we have is not just a clash of armies. It's really a clash of mentalities or a clash of systems. You can say autocracy versus democracy, and that would be true enough. But it's also way more interesting to talk about it in terms of this highly vertical Russian way of doing things versus this much more horizontal Ukrainian way of doing things. So, but to answer your question, as you put it, I think somebody wins in the end. I think Putin will win by declaring victory. And I think what a lot of commentators miss is that his power is 100% coextensive with his ability to change the story. So he can say he's won in Russia almost no matter what happens on the battlefield, which is why a lot of this hand-wringing that we do in the West about like, do we have to let him save face and do we have to let him climb down and do we have to give him an off-ramp is just completely beside the point because he can decide today that he's won, he can decide tomorrow he's won, he could have decided last month that he's won, he could decide next month that he's won, and then the Russian people will believe him or they'll pretend to believe him, which amounts to the same thing. So somebody's going to win in some sense. The Ukrainians, though, can only win on the battlefield. Um, Zelensky is a democratic elected politician. He doesn't operate in virtual reality. He has to operate in the real reality. And he can only win when his people allow him to win, or he can only end the war when his people allow him to end the war. So it's an asymmetrical situation in that sense. But I think the Ukrainians can win. They know what they're fighting for. I mean, they know quite literally that it's the existence of their state and of their people that's at stake. And that's why they're fighting the way they are, and that's why they'll fight whether we arm them or not. We should arm them because we should want them to win, and we should want this to be over as as soon as possible. My own sense, you know, and I've been wrong before, but my own sense is that by the end of the summer, we're going to be looking at a situation of, let's call it Ukrainian predominance, and a situation where Putin will probably be looking for a moment where he declares victory.
1: This is almost wish casting as much as anything else, but I keep hoping there has to be a limit, right? I mean, you said recently that it is senseless to try and shelter Putin from the sense that he's losing. And because that, you know, as you say, Putin rules in virtual reality where there is always an escape route. And in one obvious sense, that is true, right? The virtual world isn't bound in the way the material world is. But even in Russia, where reality is blurred and malleable, there are limits, right? I mean, the brute facts of the ground we'll eventually catch up with the virtual fantasy, right? Or no?
2: Yeah, they will. But that's why this war, although it's not existential for Russia, could be existential for Putin. I mean, I find it very interesting that Putin is so personally responsible for this war. Yeah. You don't see other figures in Russia, you know, leaping to the microphone to take responsibility. They're letting him take responsibility for this war. And he's taking responsibility for it. I mean, reportedly right down to the level of getting himself involved in actual battle planning, which is not to put a too fine a point on it, idiotic. But the moment where reality creeps in is where the moment Putin loses power. So long as he is in power, he controls a virtual world in Russia, because that is the definition of his power. That's the nature of his power. I agree with you that at some point this thing that we like to call reality comes crashing in, but at that point he loses power. So This is why for me, the idea of trying to let him climb down or et cetera, doesn't make any sense because he can climb down on his own until he can't, but nothing that we do makes any difference, right? The off ramps that we offer him, they're either irrelevant or they're impossible. One or the other, they're irrelevant so long as he's in power and then they're impossible after he loses power. So the way a tyranny breaks is much less predictable than a democratic changeover of power. Of course, we saw in January sixth, you know what a little bit of that unpredictability looks like. So imagine January sixth a thousand times over, and you have the next transition of power in Russia because they don't have a democracy. They don't have a, they don't have a succession principle. Nobody knows. What comes next? So, when a tyranny breaks, it breaks in this way that's very hard to foresee and will seem idiosyncratic at first. It'll be prompted by something that seems, you know, third tier, not very important, but it will lead to a chain of events where suddenly everything comes crashing down. And we'll go from this feeling that we have that Putin is inevitable to a feeling that Putin was impossible. So, I don't know if Putin's going to lose power during this war. What I'm saying is that if reality does come crashing in during this war, then it's too late for Putin anyway. And there's nothing we can really do to help him. Like his job as a teletyrant is to understand for how long he can change the channel. That's his job. We can't really do it for him.
1: Yeah. And that unpredictability is part of what makes this very unnerving, right? I mean, as you say, Putin's power over media will be total until the moment it ends. But how or when would it end? It will only end, presumably, when Putin is gone and that's terrifying because it's totally unclear what would happen when
2: Putin dies or when he's forced from power. And it's just a complete question mark. Well, look, there are three possible scenarios. One, Russia wins in the Donbass. And then Russia keeps pressing forward towards Kiev, towards Europe. Russia's emboldened. Fascists around the world are emboldened. Fascists in the United States or the far right in the United States is emboldened. That's one scenario. Another scenario is Putin realizes that he's losing. And that things are not going his way, and he declares victory. And in that sense, he wins, right? Whatever he's got, you know, Luhansk Oblast, whatever he's got, he says, this is what we're really here for. All the Russians nod their heads. The Russian media elites celebrate how wise Putin is, et cetera. That's the second scenario. But the third scenario that we're now talking about, it goes something like this Ukraine gains predominance by, let's say, late July, early August. Putin misses his window. Things start to go really wrong in Russia. The sanctions begin to bite the oil income begins to decrease. More and more things blow up in Russia, which, by the way, I don't know if everyone's paying attention, but things have been mysteriously blowing up in Russia for a couple of months now, including military recruitment stations. About a dozen of those have been set on fire, it appears. So more people refuse their call-up. There's now a draft in Russia. On the 9th of May, Putin said there wouldn't be one, but there actually is one, and people are being called up without it being announced. There's a kind of silent mobilization going on. So things come to a head in late July, early August. Putin misses his window, and people stop listening to him. This is how I see it unfold. I mean, folks tend to like to imagine something much more dramatic, like, you know, the army storms the Kremlin or whatever. I think it's more likely that you'll see a scenario which is like the late Stalin scenario, which is that people just stop listening. They just stop doing what the dictator says. They go into the room, they nod their heads, and when they leave the room, they talk to one another and they just don't do what he says. And at a certain point, the ball drops and the dictator himself realizes he's no longer a dictator. And then you start to see chaos on Russian television as people start jockeying for a position and as the dictator looks for a way to physically survive a situation in which people aren't listening to his orders. I think that's the scenario. It looks something like that.
1: And if it's something closer to that second scenario where Putin just simply declares victory... On TV. Mm. Is that the end of it? I mean, the regime just rolls relentlessly on its way as though nothing much happened. Because I think it's difficult, impossible even for people who do not live in a totalitarian state to grasp how manageable reality can be. We are kind of talking about a universe, a political universe in which television producers are, are sort of playing God.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have a taste of that in America. We all know people who are addicted to their Facebook feed. Yeah. And really believe it. We all know people who watch Fox News and do find it difficult to accept things that they haven't heard on Fox News. You have to just imagine that phenomenon, but on a much larger scale, carried out, frankly, by people with bigger budgets and better production values and broader skill sets than you have on Fox News. And then you begin to get a sense and then just imagine that everything else is cut off almost completely. So it's a banal point, but It's hard to break through into a new conversation without just the basic facts, and almost nobody in Russia is reporting the basic facts. It's really hard to do at this point. And then, as you say, it's hard to imagine certain things. One of the things it's hard to imagine is is the fear, just the the level of fear. I mean, there are Americans, undocumented people. African Americans. There are people who live in pretty high levels of fear in this country, but you have to imagine that pretty much everybody is living in a very high level of fear where your whole life can get thrown off because you do something which is apparently banal. You know, even if you don't go to prison, you don't get to go to college. Your kids don't get to go to college, right? You lose your job. Your business is given to your competitor, right? Like your life just gets warped and it can't be recovered. And a lot of people do go to prison. You know, one difference between Russia and the U.S. is a lot of middle-class people go to prison. Pretty much anybody can go to prison in Russia. So it makes the situation difficult to grasp because Putin himself is slightly a prisoner of his own creation here. He's in that situation that Trump dreamed of being, where he gets up in the morning, he tells the television what to say, and then he watches it himself in the evening. And after a while, even a very smart person can start to get trapped in his own story. And I think Putin is a little bit trapped in his own story, which makes me think that the way he sees this war is probably three or four weeks behind the way the average person in the West sees it, Hmm. which is why it's possible that he'll miss his window. I don't think he will, but I think it's possible that he'll miss his window and he won't realize that he's losing quickly enough.
1: And flipping over to the Ukrainian side, Zelensky's government has weaponized media in its own way and with enormous success. But as you say, they're doing it in a very different context. Zelensky is exploiting media as best he can, but there are constraints in a democracy. He has to govern, as you put it, in a world where others matter. And since his government doesn't control the media, he cannot simply change the subject like Putin does. He has to persuade. He has to make the case. Do you think he's making it effectively enough? What do you make of his strategy in general on this front?
2: Well, First of all, I appreciate the distinction you're making because there's this really strong temptation to think of Putin. As the one who has the problem, you know, Putin is really good at attracting attention to himself. And for years and years and years, the default question that journalists have asked is what is Putin thinking? What is Putin going to do next? Right? There's a kind of democratic naivete we have where when the dictator walks into the room, it's like, oh, now we have to only talk about the dictator. We have to worry about his needs, you know, and he doesn't actually have needs that we can fulfill, but we're fascinated by the image of the dictator. We want to know what we can do to help him climb down or to help him find an off-ramp. We're drawn to him. But he doesn't actually need us. When we talk like that, he just finds it sort of funny. Zelensky, on the other hand, does need us for the reasons that you give. He is a politician in a democratic situation. It's an unusual situation, as you say. But it's a democratic situation. He's very popular now. The war is not popular, but everyone understands why they're fighting it in Ukraine. And the polling does show that he's very popular, and the polling does show that the armed forces in Ukraine are very popular. But he needs our help. He has been very good at positioning Ukraine as an agent. That's been his great success by indispensably staying in Kiev himself. On that, essentially, the day the war began, taking control of the story with his physical presence, he has helped the rest of us to see Ukraine as an agent. Ukraine is a subject. Ukraine is an actor in all of this. And he's been very good at that. He's been very good at helping to relativize the Russians. And people in the West tend to see the Russians as 10 feet tall or, you know, is somehow completely different from us. You know, is either exactly like us or so different from us, we can't understand them, one or the other. Whereas Zelensky, you know, a native Russian speaker, someone who spent much of his career making money in Russia, who until 2014 had lots and lots of Russian friends, When I say 2014, that's, of course, because that's when Russia invaded Ukraine the last time. Zelensky gets the Russians. You know, they're not superhuman for him. They're not incomprehensible for him. They're people he can poke fun of. And he does that constantly. So he's been very successful at humanizing the Russians and making them comprehensible for the rest of us. That's another success of his. And a third success has been to, let's call it, moralize international relations because There are just an awful lot of people, including the United States, who think that might is right and they want to celebrate not only who's winning, but who they think should win, right? I mean, there are a lot of like armchair strategists out there who just were very happy to imagine that Kyiv was going to fall because that's the way the world works but it's not necessarily the way the world works. And if you think that might makes right, all you're doing is helping might, you know? And so Zelensky has worked against that. I mean, he's reminded people that we're supposed to care about things like the law of war and human rights. And the fact that he so palpably actually does care about his own people, I think matters here. Like, it's not just that he was elected. It's also that he's a caring, sympathetic human being. He's a good performer, but he also clearly cares about people, especially about young people, right? This war clearly hurts him. And for that reason, he's done a good job at helping people to see this war in ethical terms. But he's the one who's in a vulnerable position, not Putin. We worry about Putin. We don't need to worry about Putin. Putin will either take care of himself or somebody will take care of Putin. But Zelensky, we need to worry about. We need to make sure that he's able to bring this war to a conclusion that his people can find acceptable and that he's able to offer his people a future after this war.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, have we taken democracy for granted?
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, but it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box it's very easy maybe even inevitable that when people live in relative peace and comfort for a long time they begin to take political order for granted the world feels mostly stable, but it's incredibly fragile. And the veneer of civilization is paper thin. Do you think we've taken democracy for granted? Do you think the world has taken the entire liberal order for granted? And that perhaps what we're dealing with now, as grotesque as it is, is a necessary shock to the system, a reminder that everything, including civilization itself, is contingent and permanent.
2: Yeah, I agree with your premise. These things are contingent. The fact that we have democracies at all is kind of remarkable. Let's just go back a century and think of Mussolini marching on Rome and the rise of the far right in most places in Europe, the rise of the far right for that matter in the United States. These things were barely held off then. FDR was a stroke of good luck. Churchill staying in the war against the Germans, how likely was that really? And if Churchill doesn't stay in the war against the Germans, how did the Americans come in and how is that war even won? You I mean, What if Hitler had been a slightly different person and hadn't invaded the Soviet Union in 41? It's hard to see how his hold on the continent would have been broken. Yeah. So the revival of democracy after 1945 is highly contingent. And as you know, because we talked about this before and it's in some of my books, our big mistake after 1989 was to forget about what you're quite rightly calling the contingency or what could also be in some way be called the ethical part of democracy. Because after 1989, after the end of communism in Eastern Europe, we jumped on the determinist ship, you know, which the communists had jumped off of. Like, we decided that larger historical forces were going to bring democracy about. We decided that, you know, if there was a problem, it was the clash of civilizations, which meant that some people didn't understand the way that history had to go, right? That people were in different civilizations. Or if there was a problem, it was that not everybody was capitalist and therefore not everybody was going to be democratic. But it was all about larger historical forces. We've forgotten what the word democracy means, which is that the people have to rule. And if the people are going to rule, they have to want to rule. There's an indispensable ethical component to this, which is going to depend upon individuals. And the moment that individuals make the decision to give up their agency by talking about larger historical forces and how there are no alternatives, that's Maggie Thatcher, or history's come to an end, right? If we accept that paradigm, which in other places I call the politics of inevitability, if we accept that paradigm... Then we're giving up on democracy, right? Because we're saying we're not ruling. Larger forces are ruling, and larger forces, you know, are going to take you in various other places. So yeah, I think Ukrainians have definitely bought us some time to think about all this. Yeah. If Kiev had really fallen at the end of February of this year, this would have been a very dark spring for democracies for the Biden administration. I think, you know, Orban would be triumphing. Marine Le Pen might well have run the French election. Tucker Carlson would probably be the most important person in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Because these things go in waves. This is all international. It's all connected. An extreme right regime in Russia managed to destroy democracy in Ukraine. That would have had effects for everyone. So conversely, if Ukraine, despite people's expectations, manages to hold this off, that will be a great boon to democracy. Because I think it either goes one way or the other. There's such a thing as stasis. So Ukrainians have given us a chance to think. I think we should take that chance and realize that what the Ukrainians are doing is a very compressed example of the kind of courage that you actually need to keep a democracy going. We don't all have to be as courageous as my colleagues and friends are being in Ukraine, but we have to show a little bit of courage, right? We have to take that extreme example and say, okay, because democracy is contingent, therefore it depends upon our being aware of contingencies and depends a little bit upon our actions and our attitudes and our ethics.
1: Yeah. You know, something you, You wrote in your book on tyranny a few years ago, and you've said this many other places, and it's something I've written about ad nauseum, this idea that democracy is undone from within rather than from without. And people often forget that fascism is a child of democracy. It has only ever emerged out of democratic societies. And something you raise in your recent New York Times article, you know, fascism is a lot of things, but at its core, it is the celebration of will over reason, which is why fascist propaganda is always seeking to invert reality. And this is why I worry that liberal democratic societies, especially you know, comfortable ones like ours, struggle to see the threat clearly. Democracies are clumsy and plotting and frustrating. And the fascist comes along and says, enough with all this bourgeois chatter. It's time for action. And the liberal democratic mind has a hard time understanding that there's no negotiating with this. It's an explicit rejection of conversation in favor of violence. And that means the fight against it will require, I think, the abandonment of the very norms that sustain democracy in some way. I mean, I don't know, am I overstating that? Is that
2: wrong? Well, it involves being able to think in two ways at once. Mm. So, I mean, a slightly more optimistic read would be that liberal democracy is confronted by fascism, confronted by the idea that it's all about will. Generally will choose then to think badly, so we'll generally like try to somehow accommodate this into their worldview. And in so doing, people will twist themselves around to try to find a way to say, "Well, oh, this is actually about interests. Fundamentally, he's a rational person. There is a rationality. there's a logic to all of this. And so I agree with you, insofar as the first move is very often going to be to say, once Hitler is elected, he's going to behave like other politicians do when they're elected which was an awful lot of people thought that in 1933. Just give the guy power and then he'll calm down and he'll behave like everybody else. Just let Putin take some of Ukraine. He'll be satisfied. He just really wanted Ukraine's grain output. So that's the way that people twist themselves around. I think you have to develop a different gear that you drop into. And the gear that you drop into says, okay, ethnographically, I accept that my way of doing things is one way of doing things and there's another way of doing things. And that other way of doing things is a direct challenge to my way of doing things. So I have to be able to drop a gear. I have to be able to engage that, but remembering that it's not me, right? So it's not me when I'm resisting it. It's also not me when I'm not resisting it. It's just not me. So the reason why I referred in that op-ed you kindly mentioned to the Second World War is that the Germans believed until they lost. They believed until they lost. And then after they lost, they built what is now probably the best large-scale democracy. That we have in the world after they lost but they had to lose and the russians have to lose there's actually nothing better that ukraine can offer russia than defeat at this point
1: you know i'm glad you brought up the politics of eternity i first met you back in 2017 when i went up to yale for a conference of political scientists and i was reporting on it for vox and i think you were the only historian to speak there it was mostly just political scientists. And you were talking about time as a political construct. And I won't try to sum it all up here, but I did want to bring it up because it is something, to be honest, I have thought about quite a bit and still think about today, ever since I heard it out of your mouth. There's a huge chunk of this country that wants to return to Some lost and likely imaginary version of the past. And that's very worrisome because it reveals how little hope they have in the future and the perceived absence of any real solutions to our problems today. And if you're right, you know, once we've reached that point, the democratic backsliding is already well underway. And I suppose the question is is it reversible? Is there some point beyond which it isn't? And how would we know when we got there?
2: Yeah, that's all very difficult. Thanks for bringing that up because. In the Road to Unfreedom, which is what I was finishing at the time of that conference, I was trying very hard to try to put time in the forefront of our political thinking, because it's one of these issues. You know, this is just always just a classical point in the history of ideology. It's the things that you don't see that are the things that are guiding the way you think. Mm-hmm. So we don't see that we're thinking with time, but we are. The story that time has to go forward towards one point, right? That. The thing that so many people believed in the 80s and the 90s, into the 21st century, that there is no alternative. History is over. I mean, that's a view of time. And then the one that you're mentioning now, which in the book I call The Politics of Eternity, the notion that things used to be better and we've lost our innocence, but we've lost it because of other people and it's not our fault. Somebody else did this to us. And so therefore politics is somehow about the past. It's about making things great again. And Putin's war in Ukraine is just, a, it's an extreme example of this. In many ways, it really is being fought in the past. It's the dominant paradigm in Russia is that this is the second world war. And once again, we've been attacked by the Nazis. And crazy that that might sound, and, and of course, it wouldn't be possible without the media control we are talking about before. Crazy that that sounds. It's also just a form of politics that works. You give people a moment where things were clear, and we were on the good side. And people will be drawn to that. And as you say, it it then very much becomes a substitute for policy. I mean, Russia is the extreme case, and the way that Russia has worked is one of the things that gets me worried about the United States. Putin doesn't offer his people a future at all. He governs without a future. He basically governs without policy. And so that can be done, at least for a while. And so I worry that there's certainly forces in our country that are pushing us in that direction. There's the idea that democracy is about restricting the vote and the way their vote used to be restricted. There is the ever-worsening distribution of wealth, which makes it very hard for people to talk about a future in common. It makes it very hard for a lot of people to see the future. Shortening of life expectancies, lengthening of times that young people live with their parents. All of these things in concert make it harder for people to think about the future. I think there is a way to break out of this, and I think the first part of it is what I've been trying to do, and plenty of other people too, which is to name the problem, and the problem is the absence of the future, right? The problem is futurelessness. Zukunftlosigkeit. the Germans have a word for everything. And then once you've named that problem, then you have to fill the future. Like we have to say, okay, we have to somehow find a way to return the future to politics. And it has to be a future which isn't just, we're all gonna die because of global warming. It has to be a non-catastrophic future. Because otherwise you get this weird coalition of the old and the young. You know, the old don't care and the young are depressed.
1: Yeah. You know, and something else you also said to me back in 2017, I think it was the first time I interviewed you. You said that if a country can't hold together horizontally by way of an idea of factuality, then something comes along vertically with a huge myth and that person wins. And we were very obviously talking about Trump. We were in the shadow of Trump's victory, but now Trump is gone. But that destruction of shared reality is complete and I think permanent. You know, we're not living in the upside down world of Russians, but we do live in a society in which cultural divisions have mapped almost perfectly on the political divisions. And that has left us in this kind of epistemological anarchy, which is made so much worse by the collapse of trust and in institutions and authority. And you were warning about the loss of truth several years ago, Tim. I mean, I don't really see any signs of course correction. Do you?
2: It's, it's nice to be reminded of that conference. I remember one of the things that, yeah, it was odd to be surrounded by political scientists. It was nice to be there in a historian, but I was watching the political scientists and I was thinking, this is all kind of about how there are minor problems here and minor problems there. Yeah. And one of my colleague and a friend that I've had for 30 years came back after her paper and I looked at her and I said, what is this American democracy you were speaking of? And you know, she just looked at me shocked, right? But it, yeah. just, it seemed to me that there was this axiomatic treatment mm-hmm of American democracy, which like, maybe there's a flaw here, maybe there's a flaw there. But just going back to what you were saying earlier, like democracy is a struggle. Like Frederick Douglass said this very well, you know, there's, you never gain freedom without a struggle. And he, of course, had in mind, you know, African-American history, the United States, but it's true generally, if there isn't a little bit of struggle involved, then you're probably losing your democracy. Democracy is not a steady state. It's either getting better or it's getting worse. On the factuality front, I'm not quite so hopeless as that. I think the Trump phenomenon made a lot of people in traditional media aware that factuality matters. It certainly got the attention of people in places like CNN. I think it stopped a lot of people drifting. Reasonable people who are in the middle who are kind of drifting towards that everything's an opinion position. I think a lot of them actually caught themselves. So it did give at least in some quarters, some glamour to investigative reporting. There has to be more glamour and there has to be more investigative reporting. It has led, I think, to greater awareness, if not sufficient action, about the way that all this is mechanized by Facebook and by social media. So I wouldn't be quite so hopeless as that, but yeah. I, I agree that like there has to be some kind of a renaissance. I have this very old-fashioned idea, which you know no one seems to share, that there has to be a renaissance of Locally produced factuality. This can't actually be solved from DC or New York or Los Angeles. That we have to find a way of funneling money. There's plenty of money to go around from this. You know, we just tax social media, they wouldn't notice. Funneling money to localities and subsidizing a commercial or a semi commercial local reporting just as a baseline. It's when that goes away that everything else rushes in and fills in the gap. That wouldn't be a panacea, but it would be a starting point because part of this problem of what people call polarization is that people feel safe talking about ever fewer things. And so if you can give them more things, they feel safe talking about local things, then maybe you might get onto the national things or better yet, you never get onto the national things. Because one of the problems is that, you know, you're just like a city council or a school board meeting in some county in Ohio, and people are talking about national issues, which they really shouldn't be because that's not what they're for, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, you always remind people that history matters, that we have to start from history itself and not delude ourselves with myths about the past. And one of the most foolish and persistent myths, which you alluded to earlier, is this idea that history has a clear direction, that it is marching inexorably toward more progress and more freedom. That myth has always been blinkered and foolish, in my opinion. Again, do you think
2: it's dead now? It's certainly taken a big hit. One of the things that I like about the Biden administration is that they don't really seem to be operating in this inevitability language the way that previous Democratic administrations and Democratic candidates for high office have done. They do seem to be somewhere else. I mean, in the way they dealt with Ukraine, I thought it was actually striking the way they leaned on the factual evidence and didn't try to say it has to be this way, it has to be another way. So I think they're they're kind of in a different mental world. Progress, I wouldn't say it's dead. I mean, it's it's a beast that's been around for a couple hundred years. I do think we're at a moment where the contest is really between the myth makers and the openers of the future. And the myth makers right now are winning. You know, and it kind of goes back to the Russia-Ukraine war because Putin is the myth maker number one in the world. He's fighting a war on the... Largely on the basis of of his interpretation of a baptism that took place about a thousand and thirty years ago, if it took place at all. So it's the mythmakers against the openers of the future. I think it's the mythmakers against the truth tellers. I think the notion that there's automatic progress or that capitalism is bringing us democracy. I do think that that's been pretty well undermined, and you can kind of feel the gap, right? Like people don't quite know how to be moderates anymore because there are people who want to be constitutionally, they want to be on the side of the status quo, but there isn't really a status quo.
1: Do you think we have any truly indispensable myths?
2: Uh, I I do believe in values and then ideals, which isn't exactly the same thing. I mean, I I think it falls into the category of myth when you locate a hero or a moment in the past who somehow does the work for you, Mm. who takes responsibility away from you, I do believe that there are ideas and there are stories around ideas which are valuable. So the ideas of equality and freedom, especially freedom. I'm trying to write a book about freedom now. On the one hand, there's a whole history of how the word and the concept of freedom have been relativized and perverted and subjected to abuse. Charles Mills, for example, the late philosopher, did a terrific job writing about this. But at the same time, I do believe that the idea of freedom is not just politically salient. I think it's Quite rich. And, you know, it's an American idea. I think we can go somewhere with it. I think we can go into the future with it. So, I mean, for me, history is very important because it corrects myths. And history is very important because it helps us to realize that all kinds of things are possible and not just a thing that seems inevitable today. Yeah.
1: You know, I think most of us, I think for very understandable reasons, have a fairly limited time horizon. You know, we live in history, yeah, but we exist in our world, in our time, in the past and the future, are distant abstractions. And yet we still have to think beyond the moment. We still have to remember where we've come from and and what we've transcended to appreciate how good we have it. And also how quickly it can all wash away like a sandcastle at high tide. How do we get people to do that, to always stay grounded in the struggles of now, but also keeping an eye towards history and all the lessons it has to teach?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll make an ancient philosophical point. There isn't really a present, right? There isn't really a present moment. Like insofar as you and I are able to interact in what seems like a present, it's because we share a language and a set of references that go back into the past, right? I mean, it's a banal point, but I think it's indispensable because the present comes alive before us on the basis of where we're coming from and what we bring to this moment. And I think that a similar point can be made about the future with respect to the present. The present is meaningful for us insofar as it seems to head out in a number of possible directions, some of which we may find attractive personally or or collectively. If the present is just the present, right? You know, which in our world is just me like scrolling through on my phone, right? Like I'm totally focused on the present. Then it's nothing. If you're concentrated completely on the present, at this logical extreme, you're actually concentrated on nothing. There's just, there's not actually anything there. So, what does that suggest? I mean, it suggests that, you know, there's a limit to the American logic of like living for the moment. There's a limit to that. Like, the moment doesn't really exist except as it's couched in other moments, past and future. So, I'm not just going to make a case for history here. I mean, I, 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 I love history and it makes me happy when people tell me that they've read history books. And I'll make a point of practice here. A lot of people who I meet who are doing good things tell me that they read history books. And I'm sure they're just like trying to make me feel better. But I am struck by how when I ask people, which is my routine questions, what book do you have by your bedside table? How often it is a history book. So it's very simple, but I think people are really animated by a notion that things could be different. Because every time you read a history book, you realize, well, wow, things were different, things might have been different. And there are all kinds of ways that that moment could have connected to this moment. But I mean, I also think even science fiction or philosophy, stuff that gets you to think not just in the past, but in the future is also necessary. Yeah, Whatever can throw you into the future and get you thinking in that direction as well. Because I, I agree with you, like naturally, we only have one life and we're going to collapse towards the moment and we're overwhelmed by our everyday concerns. But the more We can stretch ourselves in both directions the more those moments make sense yeah because i mean another thing about just living in the moment is that it makes no sense you can never figure out what the hell is going on right (laughs) i know a lot about russia and ukraine i've been studying them for years i know a lot of the people involved either personally or i've read their writings but if i just obsess about what's happening every second like even i like lose track of what's going on right because i get lost in the overwhelming the infinitude of the immediate i get lost in that
1: We're going to take one last short break. When we come back, I asked Tim, is history moving too quickly for us to keep up? Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do... But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: I think I'm like at this point obliged to at least reference one dead German philosopher every episode or at least every other episode. You know, Heidegger made a point which has also stuck with me for a long time. And I'm thinking of it now. He said something like, you know, for virtually all of human history, the world that people died in looked just like the world they were born into. And that set culture on a relatively firm foundation. But in the age of technology, the world changes so fast and no one really has any control over it. We're sort of you know, hostage to it. Mm-hmm. As a consequence of that, the reference points between generations are disappearing and we're kind of losing that shared history that's shared grounding, and that's very destabilizing for individuals and cultures. But I guess what I'm kind of asking is, is history moving too quickly now for people to keep up, for cultures to keep up?
2: So I was a kid in the 80s when computing became personal and I programmed for a while and I took it pretty seriously for a while and then have paid not quite idle attention to what's happened next. And you know, the 20 years that I've been teaching, I've seen how my students have changed. And how their minds have changed, how the way they interact with each other has changed, how the way they interact with me has changed, how the way they interact with books has changed. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this too is history. If what you're saying is true, then it is. Like, that's a subject for history. It's not a reason to give up on history. Like, it's not that the history is moving so fast. It's that there's now another subject that you have to put into history, which is the relationship between, for lack of a better cliche, human and machine. You know, Satra has this idea of the third, that like the two of us, whenever we interact, there's a third who's not present, but who is affecting the way we interact, right? So like, this is a podcast. So and people who are going to listen to the podcast aren't here, but in some sense they are here. In a lot of human interactions, the third is now the machine. It's mechanized, right? Like you do something in real life thinking about how you're going to tweet about it later. You have a hundred other examples like that. And so the third is now the machine. Okay, but that's a historical point. Like that wasn't true 10 years ago. And so, yeah, it may be more rapid, but I don't think it's history that's faster. I think it's, we're constantly attacked by immediacy and by stimulus. Yeah. But I think that's something that we actually need history to, to kind of try to understand. I want to make another point about generations though, which I think is kind of interesting. Broadly agreeing with what you're saying, I think another implication of it is the possibility for not just generational misunderstanding, but generational conflict or generational difference. And not to make everything about Russia and Ukraine, but it is really striking how the Russian-Ukrainian war is a war of guys who are in their late 60s and early 70s against men and women who are in their early 40s. And going back to your question about how Zelensky presents himself, how that has turned out to matter—that basically these millennials, the people who are running Ukraine, it's not just that they're quote-unquote savvy about tech; it's that they are readier for some kind of inchoate, decentralized thing than the Russian authorities are. Like The Russian authorities were ready with big propaganda stories, and they're ready with fiction, and they were ready with the stuff that worked 10 years ago. But The Ukrainians, on the other hand, are just much more comfortable in this fluid world and they're much calmer in it, and it's much harder to shake them. And then pushing the generational point further, and this is a point that a very, very smart observer of Russian politics called Maxim Tudolubov made. His point was that the whole Putin regime is generational warfare. This is a guy who's almost 70 and he's managed to crush the generation in their 40s, right? Which is Navalny, right? They either have to flee or they have to suppress their personalities, or they're in prison, like Navalny, right? He's managed to crush that generation. And then the next generation, the guys who are 20, are now being sent off to be traumatized or to die in this idiotic war. So I've taken your question somewhere else. The reason I've done that is that I'm trying to stress that I think that like this too is a historical phenomenon. Like It's a challenge, and we should try to write about it in terms of time passing, in terms of generations, and so on.
1: There's not a perfect way to end a conversation this broad and deep, but I, I I do want to return to this notion that ideas matter, whether we know it or not, that we're hostage to ideas, whether we know it or not. I very obviously agree with you about this. And I guess I wonder how you think a society frees itself from the tyranny of bad ideas, not even necessarily bad ideas, but ideas that may have made sense at one point in time, but have outlived their utility. And yet our institutions are still pathologically attached <laughs> to them? How do we break free of ideas that are no longer working for us?
2: Yeah, you're right. That's a big, tough question for the end. But <laughs> in your question, you've already incorporated my favorite answer, which is that bad ideas are also ideas. Because the people who say that ideas don't matter are generally not including bad ideas. I'm slightly an intellectual historian. That's how I was trained. And I always think, yeah, but, you know, the fact that it's not a good idea or an interesting idea doesn't mean that it's not an idea, right? I mean, the fact that it's not Weber or Kafka or whatever doesn't mean that it's not an idea. You know, bad ideas also matter. You know, Hitler's ideas certainly mattered, though they were bad ideas. Trump's ideas matter. Putin's ideas certainly matter. And then also the claim that ideas don't matter is also an idea. Yeah,
1: and a stupid idea.
2: It's a stupid idea, but also an effectual idea. It has also made a career. Yeah you know, the whole thing we're talking about before, the end of history, that business, the end of history, there are no alternatives, that's partly the idea that there are no ideas anymore, right? Because if there are no more alternatives, there are more possibilities, that means that your ideas can't really matter because the larger forces are pushing us in some so You can go ahead and have your ideas. You can have a cocktail party, you can have a relationship and impress your date with your ideas, but they're not going to matter because the larger forces have determined that there's going to be democracy, etc. So, But to try to take a stab at this, that, Sean, is a question which is on my mind every day because I go through the world thinking that there are all these ideas and they're in competition and the way that we will react to them is very often a slumbering sort of way or a hesitant sort of way, a certain unwillingness to recognize that that's an idea and therefore has to be addressed as an idea. And again, not to make everything about Putin and Ukraine, but actually I am making everything about Putin and Ukraine, so I'll do it again our big central failure in anticipating Russia's actions, as far as I'm concerned, has to do with that, that we wanted Putin not to have ideas. We wanted him to just be a technocrat and be reasonable. But he had ideas. They may be terrible ideas, but they're ideas that you can analyze. So how to get to better ideas? I mean, number one is, I just have my traditional things here. Number one is just make sure that you're not on the internet all the time. Or if you're on the internet, you're not doing things that are mechanized. So like podcasts are cool because they're not mechanized. But if you're on a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed, if you're on a feed, then you're being algorithmicized, like you're being made more predictable. That's going to make it harder for you to take in new, fresh ideas. That's number one. Number two is read random old novels. (laughs) It it turns out that there's just, I mean, again, like I sound like, you know, Joe conservative or Joe, the way people used to be conservative. I'm here for it. There is just so much richness about humanity in literature, and it's just striking often how much richness, you know, on three pages of Proust or whatever. And then number three is going to be visual art. I'm a big believer the Russians have this idea of Ostrányányá, of making something seem foreign. And like, that's what I think art is for. Like art makes the familiar foreign and it makes the foreign familiar. And I think there's no substitute for art, like no substitute for visual art for doing that. So just going out and confronting yourself in the physical world with visual art, that's a way to shake yourself, like not too much, but just enough.
1: Timothy Snyder, what a pleasure. Thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you, Sean. Glad we could do it.
1: Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis, Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at VoxConversations at Vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.